being a parent is one of the hardest jobs in the world. But when your child has an eating disorder, it takes stress to a whole new level. I actually help people with eating disorders as part of the uh, work that I do, uh, amongst other things. And I can tell you absolutely it is the hardest condition that I treat. And today I'm talking with the lovely Jenny Langley, who has first-hand experience as a parent of someone with an eating disorder. And this led her into what she does now. She's an author of books on the subject, and also she leads a carers a group for the New Mortley Clinic. She's absolutely brilliant. I'm sure that you'll think so too. So let's go ahead and start the interview. But first I want to ask her what it is that stresses her out on a day-to-day -day basis. There are three things, Tricia. Um, one is admin. I hate, hate, hate admin. The next one is I do a lot of presentations with PowerPoint. And if there's a mistake on my PowerPoint. And the third one is being late. Okay, and how do I cope with those? I guess you want to know that. So with admin, so I give my husband lots of affirmations about his ability to do admin. So one of my strategies is I'm very nice and very kind to him and I say please darling and then he does a lot of my admin for me um, and then the other thing is there's some admin obviously I have to do myself so I break it down into like 15 minutes blocks because otherwise it's just too much for my brain to cope with so it's yeah. that baby kind of breaking down into manageable chunks is how I get my admin done with my powerpoints I used to have almost like a mini panic attack if I could see a spelling mistake suddenly. Now I make a joke of it. I just yeah. say, oh, look, there's a mistake on the PowerPoint. I'm sure yeah. you've noticed. I used to have to stop and take a breath, but now I can just laugh about it. So it's yeah. kind of role modeling. It's okay yeah. to make mistakes. And yeah. then being late, I'm never late. I always leave loads of time. Yeah. Now I have a husband who's often late. So, you know, so there's a bit of juggling going on there, but that's yeah. kind of like the acceptance, isn't it? That we're all yeah. doing I hate being late for anything. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm the same way. We could have a whole session on that, actually. But, uh, but I love because you're super organised is how you appear to me. So what you've done is you found a way of managing the bit that we all need to do to be organised by delegating it or chunking it. I love that. Brilliant tip. And um, and you've done the same as me. So I don't like it after I've made a mistake. Really don't like it if I've made a mistake. But actually using humour. Oh, doesn't that make life easier for everyone? Yeah, I, I just, I found many years ago, humor is is a wonderful way of dealing with a lot of stuff. We don't, we don't have to make things bigger than they are. Thank you very much for that. So I, I completely identify with all of them, except my husband wouldn't do my admin for a million pounds. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> ne never mind nor with the dog so i'm stuffed on that <laughs> not to worry so let's talk about the subject matter eating disorders and and you're you're a, a, a known expert in this field and and mainly because this is what happened in your family with your son uh, who was only 12 at the time so what is it that let you know what were the uh, the first signs that you knew that he had a problem? Okay, well, this was back in 2002. So it was really difficult because people didn't think that boys got eating disorders. Mm. Um, and if you'd met my son with his mates, you would have said he was the least likely to ever have any sort of mental health distress. Mm. You know, he was laid back, chilled, good at football, good at maths, happy, happy boy. Um, and then what happened is as he was coming up to his 12th birthday, he started doing weight bearing exercise. And that for a young boy who's really passionate about football is completely appropriate. 
Yeah. So he had a growth spurt, he got a six pack, he was stronger, he was quick around the football field. So of course, everyone was giving him loads of attention. Wow, you're amazing. You're gonna be the best football captain ever. And what we didn't realize was that um, his passion for football was kind of morphing into an obsession, almost obsessive compulsive exercise. Yeah. Um, so very quickly it became clear. So he started losing weight, not because he wasn't eating, he was eating the same as his friends, but he was doing so much exercise, a lot in secret, that he started to lose weight. So within five weeks, he'd lost five kilos. So clearly we noticed. He then went off to see his dad was in um, New Zealand at the time, went off to see his dad for three weeks over the Christmas period. And his dad rang me and said, I'm a bit worried he's, you know, he's, he's, he's not eating puddings. And we're, we're not a pudding family, so I didn't really kind of think about that. He's not eating puddings and he's going for lots of runs. And I said, well, thank you so much for telling me, but, you know, try not to make a big deal out of it. Just enjoy the holiday and I'll address it when he comes home and of course when he walked back through the airport we were shocked that this kind of little wizened face so he clearly lost more weight and it carried on so I took him to the GP the GP had never met him because he was a really healthy young boy he never went to the doctor the GP checked him out at that stage his heart rate was fine his blood pressure was fine his weight was not outside the normal range um, and so of course we got the don't mummies fuss so it kind of put me off a bit but he carried on losing a kilo a week um, and so I kept going back to the doctor every week and he did every test under the sun for something physical. Was it yeah. stomach blockage? Was it cancer? Was it all of these? And then eventually after 10 weeks, he lost 10 kilos so he could hardly oh walk. Oh so we goodness. then got the diagnosis of anorexia. So we went to see a, um, a private psychiatrist actually who was going off on holiday and he said, um, yes, I think he's got anorexia. Keep him quiet at home and we'll see him again when I get back. And we didn't get through the two weeks. He was carrying on getting iller and iller. So we ended up having to dash to the GP, dash to A&E, he was then put on a drip, and then he was moved to an inpatient unit the next day. Mm. And I always say we were lucky that it was so quick because if the, I've heard of other young lads at that stage who just couldn't get help because they didn't get so quick, so ill so quickly. And so, also you were very, uh, you were very persistent, weren't you, in, in yeah. uh, going to the doctors and, and getting more and more tests. Yeah. So I, I think that's, that's something. Yeah, it is. But but to be fair to other families who maybe say, why didn't I notice it sooner? He was losing weight so rapidly that that we had to stop it. Like he wouldn't he wouldn't have survived if we hadn't stepped in and yeah. got him to that hospital that night. So yeah. um, and then I say we were so fortunate because then he was four months in an inpatient unit, which saved his life. It was incredible. It was yeah. very holistic. He got art therapy, group therapy. Um, cognitive behavioural therapy, even when he was really low weight, but that wasn't because they filled in negative chart thoughts. It was because he really got on with the therapist because they would connect over football. It was oh, nice. Like football. Yeah. I don't think they did any negative thought charts or anything like that. Um, yeah. So it was under the guise of CBT, but it was just that connection yeah. with somebody that he could relate with. Um, yeah. So yeah, so that that kind of saved his life. So um, yeah, I've got I've got. Well, I've got two websites, but I've incorporated the boy anorexia one into the main New Maudsley one. Um, and that gives a list of like 25 things to look out for. Brilliant. The rapid weight loss, the, um, the compulsive exercise, um, the mood changes are like three really big ones. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I will share the resources, by the way, uh, at, at the bottom. Um, so it, it sounds like the first clue that you had was something that was a general interest that became an obsession. And it's hard to know, isn't he keen on exercise? Isn't he great? So it, it's 
kind of hard to know when is this like wow this is really extreme now yeah. did you get a point before he went to see his dad where you thought wow this is extreme or was it Not kind of no, no, no yeah it's so no. hard isn't it yeah and and you said about the secrecy doing some in secret you don't know what you don't know exactly. uh, so it, it's yeah. so very very difficult and you, and you do become aware once your mind is there's something seriously wrong here you do start looking out for things but he was he's our eldest child so we didn't know is this puberty is this just like extreme these extreme rages is this just what puberty's like oh my goodness we're gonna have to go through this six times because we've got six kids you know so um it's really, really confusing. We've had a lot of this in lockdown. So we've got this kind of lockdown cliche yeah. um, patient, haven't we? Yeah. Um, there's so many youngsters who, so it could have been my son or it could have been a girl who loves hockey or lacrosse or gymnastics. So they're taken out of their friendship group. They're taken out of their passion, their group sports. They're mm. stuck at home. As my daughter said to me, it's like being stuck in an old people's home, mum. <laughs> and they've got the messages. I know you've got the messages from the government saying, make sure you still exercise and make sure you're eating healthfully because we don't want the obesity um, epidemic to get any worse. Mm. And so, of course, some, not all, but some kids will internalize that. Yeah. And it's very difficult for parents to know, is this healthy doing all these HIIT workouts every day and becoming vegan? Or is this the start of an eating disorder? And it's really impossible to give a, a hundred percent answer on that yeah so I, I love the fact that I love that you've got a list of 25 things because it, it's kind of looking at um you know how many of these am I ticking not yeah. that it's a you know a, a mathematical thing but you know the more that there are the more you need to be concerned and I, I'm treating a lot of people with eating disorders at the moment more than I ever have and I've yeah. been doing them for about 20 years um and what i'm massively concerned about apart from what you've said is that uh, so a lot of the uh, you know young young people at school now at school the schools are actually have this thing about that you know the children don't want to eat so they yeah there's a whole group of children not eating so they're part yeah. of this friendship group where they don't eat yeah it's, there, it's is definitely, there is a contagion thing going on so yeah. so i do a lot of work in schools about everything to do with mm. emotional well-being not just eating disorders but since the schools have gone back, most yes. schools are asking me to do um, work around with the kids around eating disorders. Brilliant, brilliant. So Jenny, how has this affected your family? So you mentioned the six kids, he's the eldest, uh, which kind of makes it a bit more difficult because he's kind of like a role model to the younger ones, yeah. I guess. So how, how did that affect the family unit? Well, it was life-changing for me. So I was working in the city as a stockbroker. So I'm a chartered accountant by profession. So I yeah. now call me myself a recovered chartered accountant. So <laughs> obviously I'm still a chartered accountant, but I don't do that stuff anymore. Um, but in terms of the, in the, there's different stages. Okay. So to start with, it like froze the family. We we were we didn't know what to do. We're like rabbits in the headlight. We, yeah. we knew something was wrong with our eldest child. We weren't quite sure what we could do about it and the GP wasn't sure nobody was sure it was like it was just so frightening like what is going on and of course we're trying to juggle all these other kids as well so so first of all our main priority so my main priority was to try and get my eldest son the right help and my husband's main priority was kind of organizing the rest of the family if that makes sense yeah um, and that that you know so so we we did work that out and then of course we were both working full-time so we were having to juggle that as well. But we did have, because we both work full time, we did have childcare in place and everything. So we, we did kind of have 
a bigger support network than if it had just been me at home and my husband working and there wasn't any other support network because I do come across families like that where they say it's really really hard to find a wider support network so we were lucky in that sense we already had a kind of wider support network and then with the other kids um it was it was so the next was the next stage was nine and then the other ones were kind of you know eight and below um so the nine-year-old in particular was affected in that he became very so he and the older boy were at the same school but the other kids were at a different school so they weren't it wasn't quite so much in their face so James really struggled so the second child because people at school were always going what's wrong with your brother what's wrong with your brother so it was almost like he was being defined by his brother's illness so we really really had to work hard to help the school to make sure that he wasn't the brother of the kid with the eating disorder right yeah and that's how he was so the school yeah. were really good with that Brilliant. Um, and then with the other kids, it was all about making sure that they still had activities and distractions. And as I say, because we had that wider support network, um, that we managed that. And also, don't forget with us, it was very quick. With other families, it's, it can take much, much longer to get a diagnosis. And then it can take much, much longer to start treatment. It can take much, much longer for the treatment to go through the process. So it was relatively quick. But the most important thing was we made sure that each child had their own space and had something that wasn't they were they weren't just a sibling of somebody with an eating disorder brilliant lovely because they can lose themselves in yeah. in in uh, their siblings anorexia can't they yeah. and uh, you know so that's kind of creates a lot of toxicity and chaos in the family yeah. potentially okay so uh what top three tips do you have okay. you allowed more if necessary uh for people who are parents of and any child with uh, an eating disorder. So I'll give three and then I'll give more. <laughs> okay. It's hard because there's so many things, aren't there? It, it's so complicated, everyone. It is the most complicated, most difficult condition, isn't it? Yeah. So write everything down. So write everything down that you're noticing. So that with my son, it was, um, First of all, the exercise, the change in the, it became very private, very repetitive. Um, he was, became so ill, he couldn't play football, you know, within eight weeks. So, oh, nice. so write down what you're observing about the exercise, obviously what you're observing about the food. So with my son, he was eating the same as his mates until he'd lost about eight kilos. And then he started reducing the food as well. And I've learned afterwards, that's because his brain had started to be starved. He started to get the anorexic voices saying, don't eat, don't eat, don't eat. Yeah. Then we had the double mani, whammy. So any not even just the amount of food, the, um, the, the little habits, the rituals that come with the food. So yeah. cutting food up into tiny pieces, um, shuffling food off the plate into the dog or the younger brother. So, so Or up the um, sleeve. Yeah, on your sleeves, the spit thing, spitting into tissues, anything like that that you're noticing, write it all down. Because when you go to get a GP appointment, you forget it goes out of your head, your prefrontal yeah. cortex switches off. So yeah. write everything down. So everything about the food, everything about mood, so you might think, is this puberty? But write it down anyway. Yeah. So whether it's, um, you know, it, it's more sassiness than usual or it's blatant rudeness, swearing, throwing things, banging things, anything like that. Um, so just write it down. So then you're really, really focusing your brain on what are the changes that are going on in behaviour here. Yeah. Um, anything to do with body image. So either talking about I'm fat, I'm fat, I'm fat, or just checking in the mirror all the time. So my son never said that he felt fat. 
and he didn't really check himself in the mirror. But when I would talk to him about how he looked, he would say, no, 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 I'm fine. Lots of boys are really skinny. And that's true, isn't it? Lots of healthy boys are really skinny. And so his wasn't about body image, but very often it is about body image. Um, so, so food, mood, weight, shape, anything to do with those, write them down. But also any other changes in behaviour. So becoming withdrawn, maybe spending more time on homework rather than being out with friends. Um, it's been really confusing in lockdown, of course, because people haven't been, you know, we talk about social isolation as being one of the biggest indicators of distress. Yeah. But everybody was enforced into social isolation. Absolutely. But, yeah. but writing whatever the, you know, the environmental situation is, just writing everything down that you're noticing in the changes of behaviour. So that's tip number one. Yeah, in, in one place, not lots of post-its no, no. everywhere. In a, have, a, have a diary. Yeah, yeah, one place. Yeah. So you might think, oh, well, obviously I'll have a food diary, but any changes in behaviour, write them down. And then you, as a parent, you feel more empowered to go and get the help. So tip number two, seek help as quickly as you can. Yeah. Now, this is really, really hard because, you, you know, you're reading every day about the NHS is under so much pressure. Child and adolescent mental health services are stretched to the limit. And so the bar is definitely higher to get a referral. But what I find is it's, it's the families who are the warriors, W-A, warriors, not the warriors. The yeah. warriors, they just keep going back. Like I said, I went to the GP every week yeah. until we got the help. So don't give up. If you think, then the government nice guidelines say if parents are concerned, then that's enough to seek treatment. Yeah. Um, the charity Beat has a really great leaflet, a GP leaflet that you can download that gives you mm -hmm. things to kind of ask for um, when, you're, when you're going to the GP, when you're first concerned. Mm -hmm. um, and then, as you know, Tricia, I've got that kind of medical risk checklist as well, yeah. um, which any of your viewers could you know, yeah. contact you or me and, and we can send them that. But again, it's like having a list, isn't it? Yeah. So, so this is why I'm concerned. So you're seeking help and you've got very specific concerns. So tip two comes directly out of tip one. Write everything down, seek help, help as quickly as possible. Tip three, keep calm. Which is the hardest thing. The hardest You're watching thing. your child disappear, changing, thing. morphing into goodness knows what. It's the, the hardest thing. thing, but it's so important, isn't it? Yeah, so can I quickly explain our animal metaphors, Trish? I think Please, be because they are beyond brilliant. Yeah. I don't know who came up with them. Janet Treasure, no, Professor oh. Janet Treasure. Oh. So she's my kind of mentor guru. Yeah. You know, she came up with the whole new Maudsley approach, which is all about collaborative care, which means involving family, of yeah. course. Now, she observed, so this is going back decades, she observed the families she was working with. There were some very typical parental responses to having a child with an eating disorder. And I was all of these, okay? So there's the kangaroo. Oh my goodness. My darling, you're not well. Let me put you in my pouch. Let me look after you and make all the decisions for you. Which is great when they're three, but that when they're 12 or 20 or 30 or whatever it is, it's kind of suggesting that they don't have the capacity to cope in the big wide world out there. Now to start with, they don't. So with an eating disorder, they're completely incapacitated to start with. So of course, so we, we always say, if something's working, carry on doing it. So if being a kangaroo is working at the moment, be a kangaroo for your child for your child for your yes. child's progress because sometimes it's a way of self-soothing yes. i am doing everything but you know who are you doing this for you're doing it for yes. yourself or you're doing it for your child's betterment yeah. well we'll come back to that self-care bit in a minute but yeah. yeah so so in the early stages of treatment 
if you're in charge of the feeding, then of course you have to be the kangaroo carer because you're in charge of making sure that they eat the food which is their medicine. Yeah. And that's another story that's really, really hard as well. So that's the kangaroo. Then there's the rhino, which is the arguing with logic. So of course I'm a city stockbroker. I would go to London every day and I'd tell 200 very clever people to buy Glaxo, sell AstraZeneca, and these are the 10 reasons why, and they would do it. So of course I was naturally very rhino-like. But I very quickly found, the more I said to my son, darling, you need to eat more and exercise less, or you might get ill. The more I said that, and of course, the more, the more I said it, the more he ate less and exercised more, but um, I became very, very anxious. And so we ended up in just a massive, great big battle. So yeah. I quickly worked out, I was fighting the eating disorder voice, we called yes. it Rex, yeah? yeah? We had my son, Joe, and then there was Rex, the monster. Um, so I was always very conscious. Am I in a battle with Rex or am I connecting with my son? Absolutely. And I'd start every conversation with Joe. So I'd yeah. say his name. Connecting with him. Yeah. Connecting with him. So the rhino, try it. If, if logic works, I've, I've not met any families with eating disorders where logic has ever worked. Try being a rhino. If it works, then think about making a change. It's, then it's using logic for an emotional condition. Yeah, exactly. It's not appropriate. Yeah. Exactly. exactly. So then we've got the emotional metaphors. So we've got the jellyfish. So the jellyfish is very transparent. And there's nothing wrong with being vulnerable and showing your emotions. You know, that's emotionally intelligent. Of course it is. Yeah. But the jellyfish has a sting in its tail. Mm -hmm. So my example of this was I was called to school. So this was when my son was still able to go to school. I was called to school. You need to come and pick him up. He can't even walk up the stairs. So I get to school. My heart's racing. My mouth's dry. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm having a, a mini panic attack. And he gets, he shuffles out with this ridiculous briefcase. He gets in the car and I burst into tears. And he says, mummy, 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 please don't cry. I promise I'll eat. So I'm like, yes, I need to cry more. And of course, when we got home, he burst into tears, didn't eat a thing. So the, the, over, the, the emotional dysregulation, the look what you're doing to this family, which is very often just pops out of your mouth. You can't help it. Look what this eating disorder is doing to this family. It's obviously really unhelpful for the young person who's struggling. Yeah. And then there's the switch off the emotions, ostrich, which is the head in the sand, yeah. which many families just naturally, they think this is just a passing phase. Yeah. It's, it's, it can't be an eating disorder. Nobody in our family would get an eating disorder. I can't tell you how many families have said that to me. We just didn't see it coming. So those animal, and then there's the terrier, which is kind of yap, 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 which I was very terrier-like, and my son would literally go la, 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 la. So no connection, yeah? So the idea is that if you find that any of your instinctive caring reactions aren't working so well, then you can think about little tiny things to slightly change the way you're responding to your loved one. And we say, if you do this for five or 10 minutes a day, you start to see a difference. Yeah. So we've got these two animals that we aspire to be. So first one is the St. Bernard. So what does the St. Bernard have around its neck? Is it brandy? A casket of brandy or rum or something like that, yeah? We're not telling people to have brandy or rum, right? <laughs> We're not, it's a metaphor, it's a metaphor. So the metaphor, this is the parent's self-care toolkit. The St. Bernard always has it. It's so important, it's crucial that the parents can role model that it's okay to look after yourself. And also it's crucial for the parents to look after themselves to have the energy Absolutely. to keep going to look after the person with the eating disorder. So yeah. that's self-care toolkit. So in the carer workshops that I run, we spend a lot of time around carer self-care, carer support network, 
yeah. you know, what to do when you're feeling absolutely exhausted, in excruciating pain, utter distress. You've got to have that network around you and your own self-care toolkit. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a St. Bernard. And what does a St. Bernard do in the face of any avalanche? I don't know. It stays there. It's strong. It's solid. It doesn't go away. It will stay there in the face of any avalanche, in the face of any food being thrown across the room, screaming, outbursts, violent outbursts. The St. Bernard so they're very stoical. Stoical, yeah. calm consistent yeah a force to be reckoned with but yeah. calm but without aggression with no aggression no aggression so it's just that kind of the rhino yeah you've got the yeah. rhino yeah and then you've got the st bernard yeah yeah so the rhino is aggressive hostile critical yeah. the st bernard is non-judgmental compassionate has Lovely. got time to listen yeah all of those all of yeah. those things that we teach yeah? yeah so the st bernard is is that and it's cuddly it is cuddly. Yeah. What is the great thing about dogs is they're great listeners. They never tell you what to do. They're completely yeah. non-judgmental. Yeah. And they give you unconditional love. So that's yes. Bernard, yeah. My little one's here over there. Yeah, I know. I can see him. <laughs> <laughs> my, my two are downstairs. Then we've got the dolphin metaphor. So you have the pod of dolphins swimming along. And then somebody, the baby, one of the babies within the pod swims out into the danger zone. And somebody within the pod, not necessarily the mum or dad, will swim outside and gently nudge the little dolphin back into the safety zone. And if it's very murky, that dolphin might just swim ahead for a little bit to guide the way back into the safety zone, but then very quickly come back alongside and then behind, believing that this little baby dolphin has the capacity to swim back to safety. I love that metaphor. It's so beautiful, isn't it? It is. Yeah. It's kind of kind, gracious, um, just supportive but not not controlling yeah and it's gentle nudging it's not you yeah. know so the dolphin never says to the, the the adult dolphin never says to the baby dolphin i think you should do this mm. that would be the rhino mm. i think you should do this for these 10 reasons yeah i think what happens is that parents think well i've used, it's like you, when you said about work when you know the, the strategies that you used at work to to make a difference are very very different to what will make a difference in this circumstance so it's looking at what what do i need to do here what do i need to do for my son or my daughter what will work in this situation yeah. so it's really broadening uh, your skills enormously and and choosing uh, being more selective about the way you respond to things yeah, definitely. And the key, the key thing um, that we teach in the workshops is about the connection. So yeah. think about, um, so the book I'm going to talk about later has got this strap line. Yeah. So think about the strength of the relationship being more important than the strength of the argument. Love it. Yeah. And the strength of the relationship is, is really going to be um, made stronger and stronger and stronger the more that you can emotionally connect with yeah. the person with eating disorder. And to do that, you've got to step into their shoes and look at the world through their lens. Yeah. And there's a wonderful video, the Laura Hill TED Talk, yes. about eating disorders from the inside out, that really helps you to step into the mind of somebody with an eating disorder yeah. and understand the chaos and the confusion and the noise and everything that comes when somebody with an eating disorder is faced with a plate of food, whether it's anorexia or whether it's bulimia, it's yes. still that chaos, confusion, yeah. um, turmoil. Yeah, yeah. And, and it really is turmoil. So for people going through anorexia, there is so much noise in their head 
that they can't even think straight and the noisiest voice is the anorexic voice yeah so it's uh, so a lot of the work that i do is kind of working with that and how you distinguish between that voice yeah. and your own inner wisdom yeah uh, which is always there but exactly hard, to, gets, hard to hear in the noise it does. Yeah. yeah yeah but the great thing is the great thing is Tricia, is that you know young people who thought that they would never get better who thought that it was their complete identity who thought yeah. that this was their way of life they get better yeah and when they get better they say to the people around them thank you so much for sticking by me and persevering yeah. so even just this week so we had world mental health day didn't we um we did, yeah. on sunday and even just this week you know one of our families their daughter has written this beautiful piece um for world mental health day about her recovery and exactly talking about that story yes. and then you know recovery brings so much with it so much freedom but she couldn't have done it without that support network around her yeah yeah i mean there are so many resources available and this is such a complex complex area um i think it's really easy for someone a parent to lose themselves in all of this so um the self-care is just to re-emphasize that yeah, yeah. it is not a luxury no it, it is absolutely a condition of recovery Essential. for your child yeah. for you to take care of yourself um and, and i think a lot of people really struggle with that and said so I, i've recommended someone to come to your workshop because i'm helping her, their daughter yeah. I, I know i know i should go i haven't got time yeah and and i say it's non-negotiable you have to make time whatever yeah. it is just make time make sure that you go because your workshops are for, for parents, aren't they? Yeah. Uh, to help them through. And it, it, it's, so I've attended quite a few now um, so that I know what I'm recommending. Yeah, and they're always fabulous. So you learn techniques, you learn uh, that you're, you're not alone. This is not you going crazy. This is not you being a bad parent. This is just something that happens and there is help and there is hope. Yeah. Uh, and I think exactly. that's such an important yeah. message, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I always say that 50% of the benefit of attending workshops, and I do them all on Zoom now, yeah. so it's much easier for people to come, um, yeah. but 50% is meeting other like-minded people in a safe yeah. place, and 50% yeah. is learning the skills. Yeah, yeah. It, it, you know, they're really, really good. So, so, the, so there's the support group, which yeah. you hold on a Monday? So it's on a Monday evening. It's not exactly every month, but it's every three or four weeks. Yeah. yeah, and and then you do specialist workshops. Yeah, don't you? I do the new Maudsley Care Skills workshops. So this right. is, um, oh, can't find my. I've got a great big training manual, but anyway, it's based on that. I can't. Find <laughs> it. It's a big purple book. Anyway, <laughs> dolphins. It's got dolphins on the front. I've got loads of copies, but they're just not right here. Yeah, um, and, and those metaphors, the dolphin metaphors, are in the book in the new Maudsley Method are, yeah. book, aren't yeah, they? Yeah. yeah. So yeah. in the in the training manual, there's like about 100 exercises, but within the series of four workshops, we do yeah. about 25 exercises yeah. as a group. So it's very exper experiential yeah. and um, using the scenarios in the room. Yeah. So a recent example was we were talking about how do you get somebody to um, add cow's milk to their meal plan? So any dietitian will tell you that cow's milk is the most nutritious food on a refeeding program. But how many youngsters want to have anything from the other? So, you know, there's just it's just a general thing, isn't it? Nothing to do with eating disorders, but there's this kind of anti-other movement almost in the youngsters, yeah. And so this family were telling us about that they, with their dietitian's help, they'd broken this down into such tiny baby steps that they'd managed to get their daughter, who was, you know, 
only having almond milk and the skinniest almond milk out there. Um, and so what they did, so we called it an anxiety hierarchy. So you're kind of facing your fears with baby, baby steps. You've got that little bit of anxiety to start with and then gradually you overcome that and up you go. So they started, the dietitian said, is there any possibility that we could try a thimble of skimmed milk with a straw? And this 15 year old girl who was adamant she was never gonna have anything from the other was like, and, and the dietitian said, you know, it's really nutritious. It will really help you with your meal plan. You can stop having milk you know, when, when you've recovered. And so she's, she's okay, I'll give it a go. And it wasn't as bad as she thought. Yeah. So then by the end of the week, they would, they introduced a thimble a day. So by the end of the first week, there was seven thimbles at seven, you know, so through the day, a thimble at seven points. Then they changed at some stage to five mil cups. And then at some stage, she started drinking it rather than having it through the straw. And then by the time the mum had come to the workshops, so the aim was, a pint of whole milk a day. Just impossible for this girl who was addicted to almond milk. And by the time the mum came to the workshops, she was up to three quarters of a pint of semi-skim milk a day. Mm. And that's how they did it. And that's, yeah, and that's the kind of thing that we're sharing in these workshops. Is people lovely. With all this yeah, lovely ideas techniques, and yeah. different techniques. And so yeah. a lot of the stuff in the big training manual is stories from my workshops. Yeah. Yeah, yeah no, they're definitely recommended. So I, I do recommend to, you know, it, when I'm working with a, a, a child, I always recommend to the parents. I know that you've had some come yeah. along, which is brilliant. Yeah. I also know some people haven't come along, which is not brilliant. But no, I know, but you can't make them. You no, can, you can't you make know. them. No, mm -hmm. this is my oh, rhinoceros or my terrier coming out. Yeah. <laughs> well, I know Trish that some counsellors actually have it as part of their contract. Oh. Yeah, you must. So I will take on your daughter you must sign up for Jenny Langley's workshops or equivalents. Obviously, Beat do a similar thing, developing dolphins and raising resilience. So, you know, it's what not a great idea. Yeah, it's not saying you have to go to Jenny's workshops because that would be like non-competitive or something, wouldn't it? But it's basically saying or something similar. So something new Maudsley S. Oh, wow. To sign up to. Thank you. Yeah. I, I like to think that I'm a great problem solver. I didn't even think of that. Yeah, see, it's all uh, about sharing ideas. Yeah. Sharing wow. and caring. Yeah. Um, right. So I mean, we could go on for okay. like, there's questions I want to say now, but uh, in the interest of time, maybe we do another one another time. Um, I this has been super helpful, and I'm sure anybody who even is suspecting something, this is really really helpful. I will put some resources in 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 the in the notes. Um, but I always end up uh, the sessions with asking uh, my guests if there's a book that they've read that they found really inspiring or helpful. And I think you've got a particular book in mind, haven't you? I have. I'm a complete bookaholic. Me too. It's terrible. Yeah. I can't cure myself. I've tried. <laughs> and then one of my stresses is when I've, I can't find one of my books. Oh. Because <laughs> I'm always, you know, pulling them out and leaving them around the house. But anyway, this book is incredible. So this book was first published in 2000 and then it's been republished several times. And it's by an amazing clinical psychologist called Xavier Amador. What a lovely name that is. So here we go. I'm not sick. I don't need help. Okay, so how relevant is that? For yeah. Our families. And but actually, a lot of people going through problems. Yeah. I don't, I'm fine. So the first part of the change cycle is denial. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with me. Yeah. No, you need to get yourself sorted out. So that's, I love the title yeah. even, it says a lot, doesn't it? 
Yeah, and basically he wrote it after, so he helped his brother. His brother had schizophrenia and he spent years arguing with his brother about the need for treatment and his brother saying, no, I'm not sick, I don't need help. And then he worked out, hmm, okay, I've got the completely wrong approach here, I'm being a rhino, okay? And so we have an acronym, we have lots of acronyms within the new Maltby model, one of which is less is more. So it's all about your listening skills. So you've got two ears and one mouth, use them in that ratio, empathy, all that sort of thing. So he's got a slightly different version of the less is more. So less talking, more listening, basically. Yeah. His version is listen, and don't forget, you can listen without your child saying anything. So you can notice what's going on for them. That's Lovely. a form of listening, isn't it? Absolutely. I notice that you're struggling. I notice that you're sad. I notice that you're yeah. tired. That's a form of listening, yeah. yeah? Reflective listening. So listen, then empathy. Life is really tough at the moment for, for all of us. Life is particularly tough for you because I've noticed da, 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 da. So stepping into their shoes. So that's the same as our less is more. Yeah. Then the A is agreement. Find something you can agree on. So I did this in one of the support groups um, recently. So I said, I, said, I, I said to the carers, think of something that you can agree on today, this minute, with your loved one. So it was things like, we love bluebells, or we love Disney, or we love table tennis, or we love... So something completely unrelated to the illness. And then once you've connected with somebody by agreeing with them, then you can have a stronger partnership, hence think about the strength of the relationship, not the strength of the argument. And then that partnership may help your loved one to start to have insight into the possibility that they might play the game with the treatment protocol. Does that make sense? It makes sense. And that's what he sense. did with his, with his brother. So I think there's, I'm not sure if it's his brother, but one of, when he does, there's some amazing TED Talks that he's funny. This guy is funny. I like funny. Yeah, Serious and funny. funny in one go. Love it. Yeah. Lovely. Yeah. <laughs> and he says, so I don't know if it was his brother or a different patient, but they worked out that this patient who was in an institution who would not engage and they worked out that he loved ping pong. So, so they encouraged him to play ping pong with the janitor. So no, none of the medical staff with the janitor. So every day he played ping pong with the janitor. And then as he relaxed, he became more amenable to playing a game with the clinical therapists. Brilliant. So eventually he started to engage in the treatment. Brilliant. And then I've got a really good example within the world of eating disorders, which I really would like to tell Trisha if we've just got yeah. a few more minutes. Okay. Yeah. So I do a lot of talks at conferences about the motivation of sport in recovery. Because people who have struggled with a restrictive eating disorder, people are, are terrified of them doing any activity for obvious reasons, because it uses calories. But there's lots of motivations. So with my son, if we hadn't let him play football, he never would have got better. Yeah. So I do a lot of talks about that. And I was in one conference and there was a psychiatrist from Ellen Mead. So Ellen Mead has very difficult to treat treatment resistant patients. So they're very familiar with this concept of I'm not sick, I don't need help. And so I asked a question and this lady said, well, you know, our, we used to think that, that until our patients got to a certain level, BMI or percentage weight for height, we wouldn't let them do any activity. And we had this one little girl, age 12, like your son, Jenny, and she was obsessed with the treadmill. She just kept saying, I need to go on the treadmill, I need to go on the treadmill. And of course the nurses were saying, you're not allowed to go on the treadmill. No engagement, she wouldn't engage with anything. So the psychiatrist sat down with her and said, help me understand what it is about the treadmill. And the little girl said, I, 
I've loved running since I can remember, since I was three, I've just run everywhere. Running is just my thing. I don't need to go on the treadmill all day. I just want to go on the treadmill for a few minutes every day and then I would feel so much calmer and then I would be able to ah, engage in everything. And so they agreed that she could do five minutes supervised running on the treadmill and she started to engage the next day. Isn't that interesting? So that is and it's kind of counterintuitive because yeah. of course you're going to think, oh no, not burning more calories. Yeah. But it's the thing that she connected with that allowed her to be open then to yeah. the treatment. It's kind of juggling all of these things and just, just noticing what works and what doesn't work. So I guess if she said, oh, five minutes more, five minutes more, five minutes more, yeah. then you know that it's not you know it's yeah. a different problem but if she feels satisfied with that few minutes yeah. and she's opening up then that's a positive sign but also it's giving her autonomy in a sense because yeah. it's saying okay so you show us it's up to you let's call her Liza it's up to you Liza we'll give you five minutes on the treadmill this is your meal plan that goes with the five minutes on the treadmill regime and if she can prove to them that she can stick with that then they can negotiate to go to 10 minutes, 15 minutes. This is exactly what happens with my son in his inpatient unit. Excellent. He negotiated yeah. five minutes more every week. So he went yeah. from 15 minutes to 20 minutes to 30 minutes. Yeah. yeah. Excellent. It was up to him. We always said, Joe, it's not our decision. It's yeah. up to you. If you yeah. can show us that you can look after your nutritional health this week, then we can negotiate more exercise yeah. or more football or whatever it is next week. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. So, that agency back. so I love this. Yeah. yeah I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna order it as soon as we finished our call. This guy That's is how amazing. Bookaholic guy. <laughs> and he is funny. He's funny. funny oh, I love funny it. Guy. Yeah. Oh, thank you so much, Jenny. This has been really, really excellent. I knew it would be good, but it's even better than I hoped for. I'm sure we've overrun, but I think it's been, oh. we've overrun quite a bit. But this is such a complex, important subject. I'm sure there hasn't been a moment where you haven't felt it was useful. Thank you so Thank much you. for your time today. I hope you found it as inspiring and useful as I have. And if you have, please do uh, make comments below. Perhaps you've got some uh, tips that you've found helpful or some insights. Um, and do like and share. This may land in somebody's inbox at just the right time for them. So do please share. Um, and uh, look forward to seeing you at the next interview. Take care now.